aboard the Freedom Express. I'm your conductor, Josh. Are you scared of the train wreck that is today's politics? Well, don't worry. The Freedom Express will never be derailed from the tracks of truth. And okay, yeah, I'm, I'm out of train analogies there. But if you want to express your opinion or send in a question, make sure you do that at Freedom Express Podcast on Instagram. Follow me there. Or you can send in an email on Freedom Express Podcast at gmail.com. Looking forward to in this episode, we're going to take a look about how Christianity has actually really shaped America today. Also, if you've ever heard the phrase separation of church and state, you'll know that it's been used against Christians for, for years and years. We'll discuss the original intent and its misapplications today. Then we'll be joined by one of the world's leading apologists, Dr. Frank Turk, to discuss the place of Christianity in politics. I'm really looking forward to my conversation with him and, of course, our audience questions later on. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out. Happy Birthing Persons Day to all the birthing persons out there. By the way, it's it's politically incorrect now to say Mother's Day because the term mother is offensive. Yes, so, so we can't be offensive. So we're going to have to say Happy Birthing Persons Day. Yep, yep, because I am always 110% politically correct all the time. <laughs> so Happy Mother's Day to all your mothers out there. Um. Also wanted to give a quick shout out to my mother who is amazing and gave me life and <laughs> and has always been a great inspiration to me. Thank you to my mother. Let's jump right in. All right. So America was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, but sometimes we don't realize how far-reaching those those principles actually were. Uh, now you hear all the time, oh, America was not a Christian nation. America is not Christian at all. It's not Christian, not Christian, not Christian. And it's almost like it's an echo chamber of how many times you hear that it's not Christian. Is that so? Was the founding of America completely separated from Christian values and Christian influence? I don't know. Let's take a look. So one one thing that originated in a Judeo-Christian teaching in the Bible, um, which I didn't actually realize until I did some research, is the Republican elective form of government. Uh, now, now, first, I want you to remember that we are not a democracy, as um, America is not a democracy. And you might not actually know that <laughs> listening to Joe Biden, but here's, here's something that James Madison said about democracies, just to keep this in your brain. He said, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention and have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property and have, in general, been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Yikes, that's scary. Now, there are, this is a quick side note, I'm sorry, but remember when there are people pushing for the abolition of the electoral college to have straight democracy, this is what the founders were talking about. So, um, here's another line by John Adams. He says, remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There was never a democracy that did not yet 
commit suicide. All right, so that's really scary. <laughs> so make sure you remember, not a democracy. Anyway, back to the Republican form of elective government. So it stems from a biblical concept that was found in uh, Exodus chapter 18, uh, verse 21. Here, let me read that for you. It says, Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. All right, so right here, this is this is God's direction to the Israelites on how to govern themselves, so not to have everybody trying to raise their hands at once and everyone chiming in, but to send representatives. And that's where this, this idea of a representative government came from originally. I, I didn't actually know that. But it was it was really cool to, to find that out, and that is something that greatly influenced America today. Another aspect of Judeo-Christian teaching that influenced uh, the founding was the right of conscience, where people can believe how they want and worship how they want. And and by the way, no other nation type really allows this, where you have you have secular or or you have hyper-religious, where you have you secular, you take like com communist China, where you, you can't openly be a Christian there and es espouse the beliefs that you want. Uh, of course, they have the state-run church, but that's that's not the same. Where you can't worship how you want, that's not free at all. And you have the other end of the spectrum where you have the hyper-religious, where you can find an example in some of the, the Muslim countries, where you can't have any ideas contrary to the Muslim faith, or that could be very, very dangerous for you. But this idea of the rights of conscience, it uh, is derived from a verse in First Timothy. It's a chapter 1, verse 5. Here it is. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So you see how integral the right of conscience is to biblical teaching. And because it was so integral to biblical teaching, it heavily influenced the founders. And that's why they um, put in the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech enshrined in the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. It's really interesting that the, the Republican form of government and the rights of conscience are um, originated in the Bible and the founders borrowed from it in order to uh, create this wonderful country. And you're like, well, well Josh, hold on a second. Um, I've been told that America is not a Christian nation because, uh, because, beca because of the, the separation of the church and state. And... I want to dive into that because it's a really important point because nothing is touted more as the, the phrase, the separation of church and state against religious organizations and religion in general, actually. And it's really important to know the context and the history behind that statement. And when you actually take a look at it, it doesn't even come close to the meaning that people try to impose on it nowadays. Let's, let's take a look at this. So what was the separation of church and state? Was this meant to create an atheistic safe haven uh, or uh, to bar the even the mention of religion from the public square? I mean, you've had cases where uh, kids have been barred from praying or even bringing a Bible to school. How is this freedom of religion? But th then they cite this line there. Oh, separation of church and state. That doesn't even make sense. 
we need to know some context behind this. So remember, in history, the, the pilgrims uh, mostly came from England, uh, fleeing religious persecution from the Anglican Church. They first went to Holland, and then they paraded over the Atlantic all the way to America. And this phrase, the separation of church and state, it was, it was coined by Thomas Jefferson, President Thomas Jefferson at the time, um, in an 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptist Association. So the Danbury Baptist Association had written him a letter where they were expressing some concerns about the new country. They were concerned that the government would one day um, start to encroach upon their religious expression and bar them from certain types of religious expressions. And they were saying, oh, they believe that government shouldn't interfere with any public uh, religious expression unless, as they told Jefferson, uh, someone's religion, uh, someone's religious practices uh, works ill to his neighbor. That was, that was a quote, works ill to his neighbor. And Thomas Jefferson agreed with them. And he was writing a letter to reassure them. So this is, this is an excerpt from the letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote back to them. He said, Religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of the government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's, that's the First Amendment, by the way. Thus building a wall of separation between the church and state. So he didn't say that religion should be kept out of the public square, but he said that the government should keep its grimy hands off religion. And that's really been lost in today's world. You have people saying, oh, well, you... you your that's a religious op opinion, so you you can't force that on me. Uh, separation of church and state. You can't have nativities at um, a courthouse or at a public place. You can't have uh, Christmas things at public schools. Just all of this nonsense. Whereas, oh, you need to keep religion away from our state. That's not how it was. It was the separation of the state from control of the church. And that's really been lost in the meaning. And it's kind of gone to what the Danbury Baptist Association feared, where government has been regulating religion, and religion has been kept out of the public square because of these regulations. Because remember, they believe that government shouldn't inter interfere with any public religious expression. How come kids can't pray at schools? How come teachers can't pray at schools anymore? Where has this gone? but it's gone down the road that this association feared. You, you say, Josh, well, what's, what's the proper role of religion in, in politics? And, and how do we exactly go about this in today's world? Well, my next guest is an expert when it comes to this. I am joined now by Dr. Frank Turk, one of the world's leading apologists. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Turk. Welcome aboard. Joshua, great being with you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's just a great honor to speak with you, and I'm really looking forward to this this conversation that we're having. Um, I wanted to uh, jump ahead to our first question. So I, I wanted to ask you, uh, 
there are, there are some people in our society, they're pushing for a complete removal of Christianity from basically uh, American society as we know it. Um, do, what do you think that would look like and how would it really affect the political arena? Do people actually realize the implications of, of, of that thought? No, I don't think they realize it. And by the way, that would be a moral position to say that anybody religious can't be involved in politics. And the question is, where do they get that from? And why do you think that's true? Why would you want to exclude a majority of the population, really, from being involved in any sort of political activity that wouldn't seem to, first of all, be fair, number one. Number two, it wouldn't be wise. Because where do you get your morality from to begin with? If there's no God, Joshua, as you well know, there's no ultimate right and wrong. Everything's just a matter of opinion. And so if you divorce a nation from that standard, from God, then you really have no way to secure human rights. You have no way to secure uh, goodness being put into the law. You may get it inadvertently from unbelievers having the common grace that we all have to basically know right from wrong, right from wrong and that may seep its way into law, but that would sort of be accidental. You really need believers to say, no, this is really what's right, and here's really what's wrong, and we ought to legislate according to that. And maybe what I ought to do is draw a distinction between religion and morality, Joshua, because so often that's confused. Mm -hmm. um, we are not tasked to legislate religion in, through our government. In other words, when we say, um, say abortion should not be legal, that's what Christians and other pro-lifers would say, we're not imposing a religious point of view merely. That's not just a religion. We're not just saying, uh, well, the reason you shouldn't abort your children is because we have uh, – we're all Christians or we're all Muslims or we're all Jews. We're not saying that. What we're saying is, is that since there is a God and killing people is wrong, you ought not kill innocent human beings. That's a moral position. Whether or not you – subscribe to any type of religion, that particular prohibition to murder people is wrong because mm -hmm. God exists. Now, you don't need to believe in God to believe that. You don't need to be a Christian, Muslim, or Jew to believe that. You just have to have God existing in order to justify that murdering innocent people is wrong. So there's a difference between legislating religion and legislating morality. We're not trying to tell people where, when, how, or if to worship. That would be legislating religion. Mm -hmm. But we can't avoid telling people how they ought to treat one another, and that's legislating morality. And all laws legislate morality. Every law declares one behavior is right and the other behavior is wrong or the opposite behavior is wrong. And what Thomas Jefferson and the founders of this country found out was the best way to establish a nation is to ground it in God. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Mm -hmm. These are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But they didn't want to set up any sort of Christian denomination They didn't, or a national church. They wanted to have the moral absolutes you get from God without forcing people to be part of a particular church or religion. And so they, they, they picked the perfect uh, sort of midway point between establishing a church for everyone or having no religious impact at all on the nation. And so they, they put in the Declaration of Independence what we call the moral law. 
which is consistent with the Bible, but you don't need the Bible to know it. It's consistent with Christianity. It comes from the same source, God, as, as does the Bible. But you don't have to force people to be part of a particular religion in order to say you ought not murder innocent people. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and I, I think that, that concept of um, the freedom to, to choose how we worship and to, to choose um, religion— uh, we don't have the the freedom to choose morality. That's that's not um, enshrined in the uh, in the Constitution, but it is to to choose our religion. Um, speaking of freedom, what um, what is the what would you define freedom as, and how is it actually a biblical concept um, in American terms? Well, it's freedom is the in my view anyway, and I think this is the Christian view. Freedom is having the ability to to do what you know you should do not what you might want to do at all times. Because if we don't restrain ourselves from doing evil things, none of us are going to live very long. Right? Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis famously said, for any, kind of re- for any kind of success in this world, quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. Um, so freedom gives you, means you have the capacity to do what you should do uh, to be a a good citizen, say, from a government perspective, Uh, from a Christian perspective, to love God and to love others, to have the ability to do that. Now, people who say who are addicted don't have that freedom. People who say are addicted to pornography, they don't have the freedom to not do it sometimes, or addicted to drugs. They don't have the freedom to not do drugs because they've got themselves in bondage into addiction. Mm -hmm. And so they wouldn't claim that they're free because they're doing all these drugs Many times they don't want to do drugs or they don't want to do pornography or they don't want to overeat or whatever their addiction is because they're in bondage to that. Now, of course, you know, Jesus famously said that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, that implies that if you don't have the truth, you're in bondage. You're in bondage to your own sin, your own desires. And so the way that we can truly exhibit freedom is to trust in Jesus who gives us then the power to resist things we ought not do. That's true freedom. doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we're never going to sin. But he gives us the power to do things that we should do and avoid the things we ought not do. That's what true freedom is. You ask any addict if they're free, and they're going to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really important to have that that concept of oh I'm I'm free to make the right choice I think is mm-hmm. is one way we should view it instead of uh, free to make any choice that I want to. Um, I, I I did I did want to ask you this this question in kind of postmodern terms where oh uh, this that may be true for you but that's not true for me and where truth is deemed basically subjective uh, how are we to approach people about the the truth of Christianity and politics? Well, when they say things like that, what you need to do is ask them a question. If they say there's no truth. What you want to do is ask them, is that true? Because it's actually a truth claim to say there's no truth. And we talk about this at quite length in our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Mm -hmm. And that is there are many self-defeating statements in our culture. There is no truth is one of them, right? Because it's a truth claim. It would be like saying I can't speak a word in English, Joshua. Like if I would say (laughs) that, you would say, hey, you just just used English to say that. What What are you doing? So there are many self-defeating claims. When people say it's true for you but not for me, you want to ask them, is that true for everyone? 
Mm-hmm. Because it's true for you, but not for me, it's true for everyone. And true for you, but not for me, can't be true because it's true for everyone. It's a self-defeating claim. So postmodernism, relativism, is really self-defeating. They're saying it's true that there is no truth. They're saying uh, there are no absolutes, yet that is an absolute statement, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing exactly what they say can't be done. Or if they say all truth is relative, you would ask them, is that a relative truth? Because it sure sounds absolute to me. If they say you ought not judge, you're going to ask them, then why are you judging me for judging? See, because that's a judgment itself Mm -hmm. to say you ought not judge. Now, Jesus didn't just say don't judge and stop. He went on to say, judge not lest you be judged. And then he said, take the speck out of your brother's eye, which involves making a judgment. So he's not saying don't make judgments. He's saying don't judge hypocritically. You know, mm-hmm. if you've got that problem in your life, go fix it, then go help your brother. But it would be completely ridiculous to say don't make judgments because, number one, it's a judgment itself. And number two, we'd all be dead already if we didn't make judgments. We make hundreds of judgments every day between good and evil, right and wrong, safe choices from dangerous choices. Mm-hmm. So judgments have to be made. And, yes, there is truth. To claim there is no truth is a truth claim. And, Joshua, I know uh, many of your listeners are, are young people. They're in school right now. Why would you go to school if there was no truth? What are you there to learn? You're there to learn truth. <laughs> yeah. Allegedly, right? That's why you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 really true. It's it's kind of a um this this toxic cycle of, oh well true, true, true. But it's it can be confusing um until you, you put it in, in those terms. Uh I wanted to ask you uh, one quick follow up question. Um a lot of people are say, "Oh, Jesus didn't involve himself in politics, therefore I should not." How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, he did involve himself in politics because he spoke to the politicians of his day, and the politicians of his day were the Pharisees. Many of them were a part of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish sort of supreme court. They were politicians and religious leaders. And here's what Jesus said when he was talking to these people. And this is Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guide, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. What's he saying to these people? (laughs) He's saying to these religious and political leaders, he's saying, you're tithing your spices but you're neglecting the bigger issues, the more important matters of the law. So he's, he's, he's basically excoriating them for majoring in the minors. You've got all these rules about these little things. Why don't you have rules about the big things? Mm-hmm. In our country, uh, we have politicians telling us what light bulbs we can and can't use, but they won't say don't murder your children in the womb. Yeah. That would be neglecting the more important matters of the law. And Jesus would excoriate our current politicians because that's what they're doing. They're, they're making rules about inconsequential matters, and they're making no rules, or they're saying, you can, you can actually murder your own children in the womb, and we're not going to say a word about that. In fact, we're even going to give you money to help you do that. <laughs> yeah. So, no, Jesus went after the politicians of his day. Now, it wasn't his primary calling. His primary calling was to come and be a sacrifice to save the world from our sins. But he did talk about that, just like he talked about many other things. He talked about money. He talked about heaven and hell. He talked about 
uh, love. He talked about so many other issues, too. Mm-hmm. And he demonstrated, of course, love by sacrificing himself in order to save us. But to say that Jesus never got involved in politics shows the people saying that, that they don't haven't really understand who Jesus dealt with most of the time, and those were the politicians. Mm-hmm. Well, that really puts it in perspective when you're like, oh, yeah, the, the Pharisees were the politicians of, of Jesus' day. I did want to ask you uh, one, one final question, and maybe this is uh, the most important question. What is, um, besides the Bible, what would you say is your favorite book? And if you don't say one of the books that you've written, I might be kind of disappointed, honestly. <laughs> well, it depends on what topic you're talking about. I mean, there's so many great books that it would be really hard to, you know, pin one of them down. I mean, probably for the kind of things that we've been talking about today, uh, Dr. Geiser and I wrote a book called Legislating Morality, which goes through these issues about Christians and politics. Um, and then a, a another book called Correct, Not Politically Correct, I wrote, has to do with same-sex marriage, which gets into these political issues. Uh, for books on Christianity, as you know, we wrote the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, that's mm-hmm. evidence for the Christian faith and stealing from God, why atheists need God to make their case. But books outside of what I've written, uh, you know, there's no there's no better wordsmith on some Christian issues than, say, C.S. Lewis Oh yeah. with Mere Christianity. Um, I mean, everybody should read Mere Christianity if you haven't read that yet. Um, there's There's good books out there right now to help you navigate the culture. On some of these issues, one was written by my friend Greg Kokel called Tactics. I don't know if you have that book. Um, Tactics is an excellent book that will help you uh, interact with people in dialogue. Okay. Uh, so those are just a few. I mean, I, I, I'm looking at hundreds of books on my shelf right now, <laughs> but I mean, there's so many great books. It's hard. To, you just can't. Yeah, just, just have can't. to have a list of favorites, right? That's right. You have to have a list of favorites because there's... There's too many of them, and there's too many different topics, really. That's that's definitely um, something to something to check out there. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Doctor Turk, for all of your time and all of your um, awesome wisdom there. That was that was a really good, um, really good interview. Thank you. Um, make sure you check out his website, crossexamine.org, and also his his famous book. I like. Uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Um, that's um, that's that's a good. Uh, that's a good read as well. Thank you, Dr. Turk, for your time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. Of course. It's been a pleasure. Well, I'm so glad that we got to have that conversation with Dr. Turk. Also, he has a YouTube channel. That's pretty awesome. Make sure you check that out as well. Well, Mr. Ronnie, how about you hand me some questions? All right. So we have a question here from Garrett. And Garrett asks... What is your third favorite fruit? Well, you know what? That's an interesting question. I don't believe anybody's ever asked asked me that before. So um, props to you, Garrett, for originality. I'd probably say apple. Apple sounds like a a good third favorite fruit to have. Thank you for the question, Garrett. Mr. Ronnie, what's the next one? All right. Oh, here it is is a question from Amanda. On your last podcast, you mentioned you thought we were deep in step four of the communist plan to overtake America. Do you think we are able to step back and make changes, or will we always remain at this step? Is there hope of stepping away from the communist plan? 
And as a reminder, if you if you don't know exactly what Amanda is talking about, make sure you check out episode three of Freedom Express. We went into this in detail, but I'll just overview real quick. So the the five steps to the communist plan for a takeover of any country is one, divide the people, two, create the appearance of popular support, three, neutralize the opposition, and four, precipitate uh, mob violence. Uh, the last one, fifth is uh, create the semblance of revolution. Uh, we are on step four in America. If you want to learn more, check out episode three. Um, as far as taking away, I believe the best thing that we as a average Americans can do is not shy away from this topic, not call it some crazy conspiracy theory and raise awareness. Because I think the more people realize what's going on, the less likely we are to fall into the trap. And I think it's a good thing for us to promote unity on this, not the, the fake manufactured unity that a certain political party is pushing, but true unity of, no, this is not what we want as Americans, and we will not accept it. Stand up and say, no, we will not stand for this awful plan to kill America. Great question, Amanda. That was that was really good. Thank you guys so much for sending in those questions. Remember to always send them in at Freedom Express Podcast on Instagram or email is Freedom Express Podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you send those in. Well, this has been another great episode of the Freedom Express, if I do say so myself. <laughs> and make sure you tune in next week, next Tuesday. And we will see you then on the Freedom Express.